The message of God's, from God's word comes from 1 Samuel 13. As we continue through the book of 1 Samuel, there are so many things to think of, so many lessons that can be learned. One thing that keeps shining again and again in my own heart as I study these particular texts is the theme of the serpent and the seed of the serpent pursuing the woman and the seed of the woman over and over again. It seems to be the backdrop of the narrative parts of Scripture and how God redeems and preserves His own people, us, from these attacks. And we, of course, know the end of the story. The title is Cycles of Darkness, and it seems like in the Scripture's history, that's what we see. Cycles of darkness. You see a spiritual success or... uh, God's people having some form of victory. And then you see almost like a, a counterattack by the enemy. And sometimes it seems to be successful. And the people fall into despair. But then that's not the end of the story. There's a man who wrote a book about darkness. He was on science television channels doing Lectures on darkness, the importance of darkness. He says darkness is good for our sleep. It's harder to sleep in the daytime. We lived in Alaska. We remember that. We had to black out the rooms. It was light all day. And you might think that's a great idea, but it's not. You can't sleep. It's good for biology. It's good for the earth to have periods of darkness. Our ecosystems need darkness. It's good for our creativity, for our spirits, he says. It's good for our safety to have times of darkness. The U.S. Air Force primarily, when they go into enemy territory that's heavily defended, we fly at night. There's safety in darkness. His book is titled The End of Night. I haven't read it. I think I may. But the whole point is why we need darkness. Of course, from from a, a perspective of astronomy, when it's the darkest, you can actually see the stars. You can see stars better in the dark. That's why if you get away from ambient light in the middle of the night and the moon is not not too high, you can actually see Lots of stars. Sometimes the Milky Way just shines out at you. Would not be possible if it weren't dark. That part of God's creation is hidden in the day. But in the, in the same, almost in the same sense, when we see great darkness in the middle of the night, there's always an expectation, isn't there? That the sun is coming up. And if you like sunrise, which I do, it's worth getting up to see the sun rise. Because out of darkness, there always comes light. I believe that's one of the reasons why we see darkness in the texts of Scripture. We see the kingdom of the serpent seemingly overwhelming the church. And it's that backdrop provide, that dark backdrop provides an opportunity for light. We can see the salvation of our King.
So let's jump into the text, verses 1 through 4. Chapters 13 and 14, by the way, are one story. It's divided um, into two chapters, and I'm going to preach in that way simply because it is much easier, I believe, to there's many lessons to be learned. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Please remain seated as you hear God's holy word. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes, and in the rocks and the tombs and the cisterns. Some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, When I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed at Gibeah of Benjamin. And the Philistines encamped at Michmash. The raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Oprah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. Another company turned toward the border that looks down, a, down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, 
his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan his son had them, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that we might, might be equipped for every good work. We pray in Jesus' name that your Holy Spirit would do that for us tonight. Amen. We see cycles of darkness, don't we? The success of Saul at first, the response of the enemy, secondly, thirdly, the rebellion of King Saul, and fourthly, the despair of the people. In verses 1 through 4, initially we see success. Saul had for one year, lived for one year, and then became king when he had reigned two years over the house of Israel. I believe this is talking about the time from when Samuel anointed him initially in secret and to the point where he had come at this time where he's publicly reigning and protecting. He has an army that are following him, 2,000 with Saul, 1,000 with Jonathan. This is a professional army. And Saul is unfortunately like a guerrilla fighter in his own land. He, he doesn't really have a, a fortress, a capital, a castle, or something like that. He's roaming around his land, which is controlled and occupied by Philistines. He's living as an exile, if you will, in his own land that's controlled by the enemy, so it seems. And the Philistines have garrisons. They have little bases of soldiers put throughout Israel to keep the people in check. They're little bases, and if any people any of the Israelites were to rebel against the Philistine rule, that garrison would take care of the problem. That's what they're there for. To ensure the obedience, the obedience of the Israelites. So this is a kind of a twisted context to view the rule of King Saul. King Saul and his kingdom. And it seems as if he's hiding and yet here in these first four verses, he does well, doesn't he? His general son, Jonathan, defeats the garrison at Geba. And it was a victory that was announced to all of Israel. The horns were blown, both in celebration, I believe, and also in mourning. Maybe Saul wasn't taken too seriously before this by the Philistines, but now we read that his kingdom had become a stench to the Philistines. The trumpet was blown It made me think of December 6th, 1941. It's the day before the attack in Pearl Harbor. Nobody in America had a desire to be in the war in World War II. Nobody. Maybe less than 10% were supportive of entering the war against Nazi Germany. 
Think of that. The great American war machine, 10% were interested in this war. And that all changed on December 7th. The surprise attack at Pearl Harbor. And all of a sudden, all of America turned out to fight. Everybody stopped what they were doing. And they were interested in fighting. My grandfather was one of them. I know I've talked about him before. He was in finals in his last year of college in the fall semester. December, you're taking finals, right? And he just said, I'm done with finals. He left and never completed college and went off to the Pacific Theater and was gone for four years. And he's just representative of how all of America wanted to get in this war now. I think something like this is what seems to have happened with the Philistines after this attack on the garrison at Geba. Seems like the Philistines turned out. There's an initial success. They blow the trumpet. They celebrate the, the victory that Jonathan had made. And then all of a sudden, it seems like all of the Philistines are leashed upon them. And that's the enemy's response that we see in verses 5 through 7. A massive army, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and infantry like the sand on the seashore. Do you remember the promise to Abraham? He was going to have descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And now we see the enemy is so numerous in his land that they are like the sand on the seashore. What's going on? What is happening in the promised land? It's this connecting theme in Scripture. It's the seed of the serpent pursuing the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent always seeks to destroy the godly line, and it always will until the end of time. For this reason, we see even the New Testament apostles telling us things like John in 1 John 3, Do not be surprised that the world hates you. Who's the world? The world is always in the New Testament the seed of the serpent. The heavenly host, in Revelation, those who dwell in the heavens, those are the church. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Jesus was pursued his entire life. You realize that from the moment of his conception, he was pursued. The moment of his birth, he was pursued. Pursued by who? The seed of the serpent. Things will be the same for us. We shouldn't be surprised that the world hates the family of Jesus as much as it hated Jesus. It's one of the reasons why we feel that the gospel and the work of the gospel is frustrated. God's work is not frustrated. But often that's how we feel. The seed of the serpent and the resulting culture of the serpent and the temptations of the serpent seem to be overwhelming and effective. Especially when it comes to the church and the work of the church and gospel. I believe Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower. 
and the seeds. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one sown on the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a short while, and tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, and immediately he falls away. For what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. Indeed, he indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and another thirty. So there seems to be a principle here that whenever there is a good work done, there is plenty of opposition. When there's a good work of God done on the earth, there's plenty of opposition. Now, before I continue, please don't begin to think that somehow I see this as somehow um, a fair fight. We know God rules over all things. And yet we do know that by his divine plan, Satan is also roaming around this earth seeking someone to devour. We don't see the full mosaic of God's providence, but we know that God wins. We know that we are his people. And we know that Satan actually serves the Almighty God like a dog on a leash. He does what he is told for God's glory. Satan and the world will come against you. Your flesh will resist God's word. This is the point of Jesus' parable. The attacks are coming. And the only good seed was the seed that persevered. The seed that hit good soil. This is exactly what happened to Saul's army. Most of them did not persevere. Saul's army seemed to melt away at the sight of the approach of the enemy. Only 600 remained. I believe our call in light of this is to stand strong for Christ every day. Even when life is hard. Of course, you need to remember these things now if life is not difficult, because life will get hard sometime, you need to be ready to stand. Certainly not every hardship that comes your way is an attack of Satan himself or something like that. But certainly hardships are brought by God for his own glory and for your good. And like all of the saints we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, we are called to be faithful. Faithfulness in the Christian life is not, is not a a 50-yard sprint. It's just a long, long series of obedience. In small things, in things that nobody probably really sees, this is how you are a soldier for Jesus. You devote your life, you center your being on your Savior. So as Satan would tell you even now, well, I'm, I'm too young actually to fight for Jesus. I'm too young to do anything important. I'm too old or too feeble. I'm not really that good. 
We've all been given a measure of faith, and you are a soldier in the army of God. You remember the old song? You learned it as a child. It's true. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never zoom or the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. You are. We all are. And think of who learns that song. It's children. We're teaching children that they're part of a battle. You think, that's pretty sick. But it's the truth. Do you think Satan loves your children? We're all in this. We all must remember the battle and be persistent. Walk forward and fight. Not in our own power, of course. We rely on the Lord and His power. How do, how do we fight for God? Often it's to wait for God. That's counterintuitive. When Satan comes against you, the allurements of the world come against you, when your flesh rises up against you, trust in God and stand strong and wait for Him to deliver you. Take up the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground and having done everything, to stand. Paul's not calling you to to launch out and do something amazing. He's calling on you to be faithful. So wait for God in the time of temptation or attack. And this is difficult. It's difficult for us to wait. We don't like waiting as people, as humans. There's a movie that I've I've seen where there's a, a man waiting at the top of a cliff to kill the guy who's climbing up the cliff on a rope. It's Princess Bride. And Wesley's climbing up the rope, and the guy waiting to kill him is impatient. And he leans over and he says, Can you hurry up? I'm waiting here to kill you. And he said, Well, I don't want to be killed. You're just going to have to wait. And he said, I hate waiting. And he helped him up. So you see what waiting would have been better for him maybe? But when you get impatient, you do stupid things. This is what Saul did. He didn't want to wait any longer. And he decided to fix this thing himself. The man after God's own heart would look at life differently. Psalm 27 is a prayer for help. David is sorely pressed. Listen to what he says. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh and my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise around me, yet I will be confident. One thing I've asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face, and my heart says, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. 
for my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So David, in the, in the great distress of his life, he knows the truth and the promises of God, and then he instructs his heart, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. And this isn't an impotent waiting. It's an active waiting. It's not in our own strength, but it's in the strength of the Lord. We're confident in our waiting because we know our God. And He is faithful and He is true and He's just. And He has written the story of our lives, indeed of the whole universe. Do you know that those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength? They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. David said in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned, and he heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the pit, out of the mire and the clay. So when you feel surrounded by the enemy, when you feel the Philistines are upon you, when you, your flesh fails within you, you're in hardship, the promises of God are true. Wait on the Lord. He's merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. His covenant love means that he has he's united himself to your cause. Or he's united, united you to his cause. He's infinite in his wisdom and his power and his goodness and his love and his truth. He's not making any mistakes. And what happens in your life. He's not unaware of your sorrow and your suffering, of your tossings and your tears. He will never leave you or forsake you. And some of you feel like this right now. The pressures of your life are immense. The relationships you've trusted have failed. Despair wakes you up in the morning and then you're tossing and turning at night. The Philistines truly are all around you. Today determine to cast your cares upon the Lord, for He cares for you. Be patient and wait for the Lord. But you see, that's not what Saul did. Saul did not wait. There were seven days allotted by Samuel. The seven days went by. He's in the seventh day, apparently. And he doesn't wait all day because he sees his own army kind of scattering as the Philistines gather. His army is actually in a pretty safe place. So he went toward the, the Jordan River, the Jordan being over here, Israel here, and the sea here, right? So the Philistines have to go to the mountain, and then they have to go over the mountain to get to Saul, who's fled all the way down here to the Jordan. So there's a mountain between the Philistines and the Israelites, and he's gone far over by the Jordan River. Gilgal, a safer place to assemble, harder for the Philistines to get there. It would be like the Philistines leaving Greenville, going over the mountain to Asheville. It's a long way. And yet it seems that they had done it. They're encamped in hot springs or something. They're around. And Saul was told by Samuel, wait seven days. But he doesn't. He goes ahead and he sacrifices to God. And actually there's some sympathy. When you read the, the text, you're kind of like, I 
think I might have done that. I might feel that pressure to, where's Samuel? The army's leaving. I'm the leader. I guess I should just do this, sacrifice myself. Was it really that bad? It was rebellion against the Most High God. This is not a God that we can reckon with like a a human. He had been told to do this by the prophet Samuel on behalf of God himself. Do you remember Nadab and Abihu who decided to, as priests, worship God with incense that they made rather than the one that God had instructed? God killed them. Remember, as David is bringing the, he's just built his city, or established his city, and he has the tabernacle set up in Jerusalem, and they're bringing, they're carting the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant toward the city with great rejoicing, and the ox stumble, and Uzzah reaches out and touches the Ark, and he's struck down. Our God is not like us. In times of distress, He desires our faithfulness. Even if we're under great pressure, the holy God, the terrible God, requires our faithfulness. And yet when we feel pressure, we're tempted to do what Saul did. And really, Saul is... It's helpful to read what happened to Saul because we rationalize our own lives the same way Saul did. Have you, have you thought about how Saul kind of tried to pass the buck when he met Samuel? Well, you didn't come. And the Philistines were they're gathering. The Israelites, they're all leaving. And so I forced myself to disobey God. I just had to do it. Samuel, come on, this is okay. That's how I feel when I sin. Well, there's this reason, there's that reason, and then this kind of, it was a surprise, and then this thing happened, and oh. And actually Saul sounds like Adam, doesn't he? God, this woman you gave me, she she ate the apple, and then she offered it to me, the fruit, and offered it to me, and then, well. And the consequences of sin are always devastating. Always devastating. Samuel says that God would have established your kingdom forever. And this word in Hebrew, I mean, we know that David is going to rise, and that his kingdom would be established So I don't want to get in a long discussion about the word forever, but it can just mean for a really, really long time, which is probably what Samuel meant in light of David. But regardless, that's not going to happen now because Saul has proved himself to be someone who doesn't pursue God, but rather pursues what's pragmatically easy for his own safety, his own kingdom. So the warning to us is not to rationalize our sin. Sin is always destructive. There's no secret sin. There's no such thing as a secret sin. There's always going to be ripples throughout your life and the lives of all those around you. 
that thing that is in your mind now that Christ died for, that sin in your life that you refuse to let go by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can stop. It might not even be something you think is really that bad, but when you gaze into the corners of your heart, you realize you love this thing way too much. Don't be like Saul. Don't rationalize your sin. There will be dire consequences in your life. But we also see great purpose in the darkness that's present. And I just, when I read verses 15 through 23, I just felt despair. I just feel like you can read into the text and just see despair everywhere. The Philistines send out three companies, and they basically are describing that they're going all over Israel. The Philistines go wherever they want, and they, they steal, they rape, they pillage. This is what armies did when they went out. They take whatever they want of value. They do whatever they want. And what is Saul doing? He's got 600 men. None of them have weapons. Except for Saul and Jonathan. What are they to do? There's no hope. And the hopelessness that you feel in this chapter is often the hopelessness we feel in our lives. There's no hope. There's just darkness. It's the same hopelessness that was felt before every one of the revivals that God brought to His church. Every one of them. It's gone too far. Our, our whole land is just devolving into darkness. We deserve nothing but misery and that's what God is giving us. And yet God preserves His remnant and this remnant is a remnant that prays. Praise for revival. Praise for a work of God. Personally and corporately, praise. Ex tenebris lux. It's the Latin phrase that defined the Reformation. Out of darkness comes light. When the seed of the serpent thought they had achieved their greatest victory... What had happened? They had seen Jesus crucified on the cross. The disciples were dismayed. They all fled. And yet the death and resurrection of our Lord is the center point, the crucible of all human history. It's our hope. That when He comes back, we also would rise. So when the world seems the darkest for the disciples of Jesus Christ today, we need to have hope. We need to stand strong. And out of the despair and the darkness that we sometimes feel, we need to remember that the morning star will rise in our hearts, as Peter said. So brother and sister, do not be afraid. Do not despair. When you read this text, you know the end of the story. Saul did not. You know the end of the story. God wins. And He always will. You have nothing to fear. Just hope and wait on God. Let us pray. Our Father in Heaven, we do thank You for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, Your own Son, the precious Lamb of God, our Messiah, the Holy One. 
We pray in Jesus' name that our hope would be in Him. That when life is difficult, when we feel surrounded, that our hope would be in You. Lord, we know that the difficulties that the Israelites faced only were the backdrop of the raising up of the man after Your own heart. You had orchestrated these events for Your glory. Not for the harm of Israel, but for their good. We pray that we would see your almighty hand even in the terrible things that happen in our lives and that it would cause us to hope in you and your glory and for your praise. We thank you in Jesus' name for all of these things.